All right, welcome to the Medicine Podcast. This is Dr. Christopher Hernandez, your host, and today we're going to be discussing asthma. Okay, here we go. Asthma is a pretty big topic, obviously a very common disease that affects a lot of people. There's a lot to know. I'm not going to discuss everything there is to know about asthma, but I am going to hit a lot of what I think are the most important points about the disease. First of all, just know that there are several different types of asthma. Atopic or allergic or extrinsic asthma is probably the most common, but there's also drug-induced asthma, either from aspirin or NSAIDs, there's exercise-induced asthma, there's cough-variant asthma, there's intrinsic or non-allergic asthma, adult-onset asthma, occupational asthma, and all of these are more or less exactly what they sound like, and they're handled and treated fairly similarly, so I don't think there's a heck of a lot you need to know about the subtypes other than that they exist. It is good to know something about the pathophysiology of asthma. The basic problem has to do with obstruction of the airways, which occurs because of inflammation and airway hyperresponsiveness. The airway inflammation leads to mucosal edema and increased secretions, which in turn lead to airway obstruction. But there's also usually a mechanism that doesn't have anything to do with inflammation or secretions, but just has to do with excessive parasympathetic activity, leading to bronchoconstriction via the body's muscarinic receptors. The bronchoconstriction can be triggered by allergens and various chemicals, or even infection. The inflammation in allergic asthma can involve IgE and mast cells and eosinophils, and we'll talk about some of those things. But basically, there are various processes at play that end up causing pathologic obstruction of the airway that is usually reversible. That's one of the key characteristics of asthma. Although even this reversibility may decline in severe disease. Okay, that's enough hand-waving about pathophysiology. In clinical practice, I think it's safe to say that asthma is often diagnosed on the basis of history alone, especially in young people, but for test-taking purposes, the guidelines say that you should really order spirometry before diagnosing asthma. It's a cheap test, basically like mini-PFTs, and it may provide a more accurate sense of the severity of disease, and in fact may even show that the patient does not have asthma, despite how their history may have sounded. So this is the right answer on the test, and probably the right thing to do in real life, especially if the patient is also a smoker, or appears to be developing asthma later in life, when you'd really want to make sure it's asthma, not some other form of pathology. So let's spend one minute talking about spirometry. The obstruction in asthma, as we've already mentioned, is characteristically reversible when bronchodilators are provided, and the spirometry test hopes to capture that, so of course bronchodilators are given as part of the test. The way it's done is that no bronchodilators are used for at least four hours before the first part of the test, then they are given, and the little spirometric breathing test is performed again. The test basically just involves the patient wrapping their lips around a little cylinder and blowing into it as hard as they can while their nose is clipped, and a computer hooked up to the cylinder measures some parameters about their exhalation that we'll discuss in a second. 
It's important to remember that if you really think they have asthma, in other words, if there's a high pretest probability of asthma, but the spirometry doesn't show it, then the patient should undergo a methicoline challenge. That's a common sort of medical school level test question. Remember, methicoline is a muscarinic receptor agonist, so it induces parasympathetic activity, which leads to bronchoconstriction. So you can use this agent to induce the symptoms of asthma. As a point of trivia, you in theory could also use inhaled mannitol for the same purpose, though I think that agent is more commonly used to help get mucus out of the lungs in cystic fibrosis. About the methicoline challenge, I do think it's a little confusing because you might ask, won't everyone demonstrate airway obstruction if you give them an agent that causes bronchoconstriction? But the point is that asthmatics respond to the agents much more powerfully than most people do. That's the so-called airway hyperresponsiveness. And maybe even more importantly, they don't not respond. That is to say, false negatives on a methicoline challenge are very rare. So if you do the test and they don't bronchoconstrict quite a bit, they probably don't have asthma. In other words, the sensitivity of the test is very good. Okay, let's keep moving. There are just a couple things to remember about interpreting spirometry with regard to asthma. You just look at the FVC and the FEV1. The FVC, we recall, stands for functional vital capacity and represents the maximum volume of air forcibly exhaled after maximal inhalation. So after you breathe in as much as you can, the volume of air you breathe out is your FVC. Your FEV1 is the maximum volume of air you can breathe out in one second when you're trying as hard as you can. That's the measure that's going to be reduced in obstruction, whereas the FVC shouldn't really be affected. As such, your FEV1 to FVC ratio will be reduced. So that's the first thing you look at. 0.7 is the most commonly used cutoff to define obstruction though some scales will use slightly different numbers for patients of different ages, for example, 0.8 for younger people. But just remember that if your FEV1 to FVC ratio is less than 0.7, meaning that in one second of forceful exhalation, you're getting less than 7 tenths of your FVC out of your lungs, then you have airway obstruction. If the airway obstruction is reversible, which is defined as a post-bronchodilator change of 12% or 200 milliliters in the FEV1, then you definitely have asthma. You can then look at the FEV1 to characterize the severity of the asthma into mild, moderate, or severe. An FEV1 greater than 70% of what's predicted for the patient's age is defined as mild obstruction. An FEV1 in the 50 to 69% range is considered moderate obstruction, and an FEV1 less than 50% is considered severe obstruction. So it's really not that complicated, but there are a few numbers to remember. I'll go over them again. The ratio of FEV1 to FBC has to be less than 0.7. The bronchodilator response has to be 12% or 200 milliliters, which is 0.2 liters, obviously. And then, if the ratio is less than 0.7, you can look at the FEV1 to gauge the severity of obstruction. Okay. That's more than enough talk about spirometry. Let's talk a little bit about classifying asthma severity. The easiest way to do this is just to pull up the asthma classification chart put out by the NAEPP, or the National Asthma Education and Prevention Program. But if you're somebody who is going to be managing asthma with any frequency at all, 
then it's probably worth committing the basic outline of this chart to memory. There are four classifications, intermittent asthma, mild persistent asthma, moderate persistent asthma, and severe persistent asthma. Intermittent asthma is the one so mild it doesn't require anything at all except a rescue inhaler, which we'll talk about later. The others are all increasingly severe, as defined mostly by symptoms, although lung function testing, as evaluated by spirometry, can also contribute to a patient's classification. So if you pull up the chart, you'll see all the things that can push a patient into a higher or more severe classification. The relevant criteria are frequency of asthma attacks during the day, frequency of waking up at night from asthma, frequency of having to use a rescue inhaler, extent to which normal activity is affected by asthma, FEV1 as we discussed, and then asthma risk, which has to do with the number of exacerbations requiring oral steroid treatment. So take a look at the chart, and just remember that when the picture is mixed, you put the patient in the highest category they qualify for. In other words, if the number of nighttime awakenings would classify them as mild persistent, but the number of rescue inhaler uses would classify them as moderate persistent, then you consider them moderate persistent. This is important not only for treatment and test questions, but also for coding, because most EMRs these days will force you to classify the severity of the patient's asthma when you're charting the diagnosis. If you're trying to commit the chart to memory, you might start with the so-called rule of twos, which refers to the fact that in intermittent asthma, you see symptoms less than or equal to two days a week, you see inhaler use less than or equal to two days a week, and you see nighttime awakenings less than or equal to two nights a month. So the twos or less are intermittent asthma. Anything more than that, and you're somewhere in the persistent asthma range. Mild persistent if it's just a little more than that, moderate persistent if you're talking daily symptoms or weekly nighttime awakenings, and severe persistent if you're using your inhaler multiple times per day, or waking up at night every night, etc. It sounds complicated, but you get a feel for it pretty quickly. So take a look at the chart and think about it, and soon you'll have asthma classification mastered. Okay, so now let's finally talk about the treatment of asthma. As I mentioned a second ago, patients with mere intermittent asthma don't require anything more than a rescue inhaler. All patients with any kind of asthma of any severity should be prescribed a rescue inhaler. These are short-acting beta-2 agonists, which you could call SABAs, but we're basically just talking about albuterol. You take two puffs every four to six hours as needed, but you can use the inhaler more frequently than that. Two puffs every 20 minutes over the course of an hour if you really need to. This is the archetypal reliever medication. Brand names include Preventil and Ventolin and Proair. All of these are the same thing, albuterol. The other so-called reliever medication is just oral corticosteroids. These are basically given when an asthma exacerbation doesn't respond to albuterol, usually in the form of 40 milligrams of prednisone daily. So those are your two basic reliever medications. The other general class of asthma medications is much larger, and they are referred to as controller medications because they're designed to control symptoms as opposed to relieving symptoms. So let's spend a minute talking about the various controller medications used in the treatment of asthma. The controller medications consist of three inhaled medications and two oral medications. The three inhaled medications are inhaled corticosteroids, abbreviated ICSs in charts, long-acting beta-2 agonists called LABAs, 
and long-acting muscarinic antagonists called LAMAs, although LAMAs are more often used in the treatment of COPD, and in asthma it's really more about steroids and LABAs. Then there are the two oral meds, which both affect leukotrienes, which of course are involved in inflammation. They're the leukotriene receptor antagonists and the leukotriene synthesis inhibitors. As far as specific meds go, there are too many to count, so to keep it simple, I'll just give you one med for each of the classes I just mentioned. The prototypical inhaled corticosteroid is probably budesonide, brand name Pulmicort. For LABAs, you can remember Salmeterol. For LAMAs, Teotropium, brand name Spiriva. For leukotriene receptor agonists, which, remember, is a pill, you almost always see Montelukast used, brand name Singular. And for leukotriene synthesis inhibitors, also a pill, you can see Zeluton, brand name Zyflo. Lots of medicines, I know, and that's just scratching the surface. Probably the best way to learn them is first to just look at a big chart, but more effectively, to just always look them up when a patient comes in on them, so you understand the mechanism of action of any medication they're on. So you see they come in on Advair, and you ask yourself, what's Advair exactly? And you look it up, and you see that it's fluticasone, which is an inhaled corticosteroid, and salmeterol, which is a LABA. So just look it up every time, and eventually it will start to sink in. Actually, that combo brings up an important point about LABAs, which is that in asthma, they should always be given with an inhaled corticosteroid. In other words, a patient with asthma should never be prescribed a LABA, without being prescribed an inhaled corticosteroid as well. That's because the data has shown that LABAs without an ICS lead to increased hospitalizations, increased intubations, even increased mortality. And this was a big enough deal that the FDA slapped black box warnings on all LABAs, which are still there, and even originally put black box warnings about it on LABA-ICS combinations, though they've since removed those because the combinations obviously are safe in that regard but that's a nice pearl to remember. About corticosteroids, the pearl to remember is that patients really have to rinse their mouths or mouths out after using them, or they run the risk of developing oral candidiasis, which of course is thrush caused by the fungus candida. I imagine this is because the inhaled steroids are basically locally immunosuppressive, but that's an important tip that pulmonologists are always mentioning to their patients and that primary care providers should as well. Okay, that's all I'm going to say about controller medications, but of course you've now got to figure out how and when to use them, and that's when your asthma classification chart comes in handy because each classification corresponds with a treatment scheme. Intermittent, as we've mentioned a couple times now, just requires a short-acting inhaler. If you've got mild persistent, then you earn yourself a low-dose inhaled corticosteroid. If you've got moderate persistent, then you start to have options. You can either bump them up to medium-dose inhaled corticosteroids, or you can leave them on low-dose and add a LABA. As you get into severe persistent, they're definitely going to be on both steroids and a LABA, with the steroid dose, medium or high, depending on the severity of symptoms. And if that's still not enough, then you start getting worried, and maybe you throw on teotropium, the LAMA, and probably you refer them to a pulmonologist for further management. And that's more or less all a primary care provider needs to know. But before we finish, let's spend just one more minute talking about what the pulmonologist might do when you send them your patient who has severe persistent asthma refractory to standard therapy. Because interestingly, biologics are now being used in the treatment of asthma. 
Biologics is a sort of vague umbrella term used to describe a huge range of newer medications in medicine that are typically derived in some way from biological sources, as opposed to being just chemically synthesized in a laboratory by means of organic chemistry reactions, say. So vaccines and medicines derived from blood or living cells are all technically biologics, but when I hear this word, it's usually referring to one of these fancy antibodies that target something in the body, and that's the case in the context of asthma. There are now fancy antibodies available that interrupt inflammation, and I got some mix-up questions about them, so as internal medicine residents, at least, we really do have to be aware of them, and we have to know a little bit about how to use them. So here's all you really need to know. Omalizumab, brand name Zolaire, which is spelled with an X, is the IgE1, while Mepolizumab, brand name Nucala, is the eosinophil one. So let me explain. To use these agents, first you have to have a patient with severe refractory disease, somebody on high-dose steroids and Dilaba, and still having to use the rescue inhaler all the time, as we just discussed. But in addition, the patient has to have objective biochemical evidence of something to derive benefit and therefore to qualify for one of these drugs. Omalizumab is anti-IgE antibody, so it makes sense that you have to have an elevated IgE in the blood to qualify for this fancy and quite expensive drug. Technically, you have to have an IgE greater than 30 international units per milliliter, Alternatively, you can have an elevated fractional excretion of nitric oxide, written F-E-N-O. Nitric oxide is released from the epithelial cells of the bronchial wall during airway inflammation, and this is another acceptable marker for omalizumab or Zolaire treatment. Mepolizumab is anti-IL-5 antibody, and to use it, the patient has to have eosinophilia with a serum eosinophil count greater than 300. So again, omalizumab for the IgE, mepolizumab for the eosinophils. This is pretty sophisticated pulmonologist-level material, but I've included it here because it is fair game for internal medicine boards, and I'm pretty sure at least some people who listen to this podcast are internal medicine residents. Okay. That's just about everything I'm going to say about asthma. I'll also add that in controlling asthma, lifestyle modifications are important. If the patient can identify triggers to their asthma exacerbations, they should obviously learn to avoid those triggers. Tobacco use, allergies, and GERD can all worsen asthma. So if they're smoking, they should stop. If they're exposed to secondhand smoke, they should get away. If they have allergies, they should get their allergies treated. If they have GERD, they should get their GERD treated. And all that may actually go a long way towards controlling their asthma. There are other things to know about asthma. For example, patients should be educated about proper inhaler technique. They should have an asthma action plan at home so they know exactly what to do if they start developing symptoms. And they should also learn to measure what's called their peak flow at home because this can be done with a simple device that they blow into that can give them some objective, quantitative feedback about their symptoms and can become a very useful tool for people at home to help gauge their symptoms and even predict an exacerbation before they start feeling it. But I can't go into everything in depth, so I'll just leave the discussion there, and the interested listener can go read more on these topics. Alright, thanks very much for listening. I did cross a thousand plays for the podcast the other day, so thank you for that. I can't say I've gotten a whole lot of feedback, so I'm thinking instead of asking for feedback at the end here, what I'll instead say is this. If you like the podcast, 
please think of one person that you know that might also enjoy or benefit from the podcast and send them a link to the podcast. That would be helpful to me. All right, see you next time.